This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Frasca continues its legacy, but with a new owner. And speaking of owners, Beechcraft owners can now get an autopilot from Dynon for 5600 bucks. Kit maker Sonics also makes a change at the top. Speaking of changes, Cirrus unleashed their new G6 aircraft. Finally, David, the EPA steps into the leaded fuel debate. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk here in 2022? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week. Jared Isaacman, such a cool guy, cool story. People have probably heard his name. He is one of the crew, actually the commander of the crew, that flew on SpaceX, the first one that orbited the Earth as a private spaceflight. Very cool. And he was up in space for three days on that SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule. He tells us all about it during an interview with Tom Haynes. Okay, so we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to start off with some news that really frankly surprised me a bit. Frasca, um, big manufacturer of really high-end sim equipment that you'll find in like university flight school programs and other commercial uh, sim centers has been sold. This is a family company. It's now been sold to Flight Safety. Flight Safety International acquired the 60-year designer uh, manufacturer of flight simulators, you know, founded by Rudy Frasca. And that was announced on January the 6th. They say that the family, and it's a family-owned business, as we mentioned, the yeah. family's still going to be very involved in this. But, you know, Frasca has had a long-standing relationship with the military and some other high-stakes sim users. So it kind of makes sense. So, yeah, as you said, they they did say that everything's staying in place. They're going to stay in Urbana. And that's Urbana, Illinois, not Urbana, Maryland, where I live. That's right. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Different Urbana. <laughs> right. John Frasca will remain the president and I think uh, largely the same management group, same name, everything else. It just seems like uh, an ownership change. So this is, this, like we said, interesting. You know, obviously uh, Rudy passed away not too many years ago, I think. And it's just a new direction for the family. Yeah, you know, Rudy Frasca was, uh, he came out of the Navy and he saw the the simulators that 
were trying to be used, and he really just made a much better box. And as I recall, I read a story about this a while back. And I talked to Peggy Pritchard Frasca, who's uh, one of the members that's a that's a driving force there. And you know, he went door to door from from school to school, university to university, and schlepped that coffin shaped device around. And that's how they got started. And their whole mantra is this personal experience, you know, being in touch with the users and with the schools and all. So Frasca does bring that personal relationship to this new operation. And that's one of the hallmarks they've been known for. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so hey, before we move on to Dine, I want to talk about another piece of SIM news, actually. And this is awesome. They're out of Europe, of France, I believe. And they just made a deal with Cirrus, actually a pretty big deal, to be a Cirrus SIM provider. Yeah, they're going to have the the AllSim uh, SR20, it's called the ALSR20 simulator for the Cirrus SR20 line. So they're, they're hooking up with Cirrus in Knoxville for that. You know, Ian, a while back, we had Scott Fersing on Hangar Talk. You know, he helps with their marketing and their innovation in North America. And Scott was really a pretty good guest back when we had him. You know, the SR20, I think, is the first of many uh, Cirrus relationships, you know, that will be implemented with, with Cirrus and, uh, the SR 22 is going to be down the line, you know, coming on board as well too. That is significant for awesome, which, uh, had a huge influx in, of cash a couple of years ago. Yeah. So one of the interesting things, obviously about a Cirrus is it's got included a caps right. capability. And this one does, I've actually, I can't remember if it's on the awesome, but, uh, I've, I've, done one of those in a sim before it's really interesting because you know you pull it and then the thing you know the engine shuts down and you sort of float down it's a very surreal experience in a simulator so just one of the many things that also will bring to that relationship you know it would be great to know how to deploy that caps in a real yeah. life scenario without doing it in real life that's yes. a key thing uh, almost like you know when we're talking about you know learning how to roll out of an airplane uh, in a parachute an aerobatic airplane or a warbird you know without ever doing it the first time you don't want the first time to be the real first time yeah right absolutely so, David, moving on, Dynan, which we haven't talked about now, actually, in a few months, the Skyview HDX autopilot, they continue to press along with model approvals, most recently in Bonanzas. That's right. Beechcraft Model 36 owners can now get the, the Dynan autopilot. And look, get this, Ian, 5500 bucks and change, which, of course, in, in aircraft monetary units, I always double that. It's going to be, you know, to get it installed and get the other equipment out. But you know what? A three-axis autopilot system for that kind of price, I mean, we're talking formerly ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. This is incredible. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Yeah, that's going to be a huge market for them, I think. You know, not a whole lot to say about it other than that, except that they are working still on the 182, which I think is going to be another big market. Mooney M20s, that'll be big because, you know, not a lot of options, I think, when you're, especially when you're talking about like the older C models, right? Yeah. You don't want to put too much into those airframes. It came with a pneumatic wing leveler on that, on the C models. Yes. But, and you could add a Britain autopilot to that wing leveler, but this takes it in a whole different direction. And yeah, I think Mooney owners will be chomping at the bit and Cessna 182 owners as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Dynan keeps a, uh, Keeps rolling along there. By the way, that does include the brackets hardware and servo harnesses. All right, so Sonics, mentioned at the top of the show, they're a kit manufacturer of all places out of Wisconsin, Oshkosh, and they make the Subsonics jet, which is by far the coolest thing in the kit world, I think. They have a new owner, and it's a familiar face. One of their longtime employees 
bought the company, Mark Sable. And so this is kind of neat. I think, you know, having someone inside the company, we talked a little bit about this in another company not long ago, ASA, the publishing folks, had oh, someone yeah, had someone mm-hmm. within their company being the president and running the company, buying it. But Sonex, like you mentioned, Ian, you know, that Sonex, that Subsonex jet is the coolest thing on the air show calendars. And there are plans for a two-person subsonics jet so that is pretty neat that's very cool yeah so and it's actually it looks a lot like their the airframe from the fuselage i should say from their other models so yeah they make a a range of one and two seat they estimate actually there are about 700 completed sonics out there which is pretty interesting and it's it's a really it's a pretty small company they've only have 18 employees which is not that many when you think about it well, one of the 18 stepped up to the plate and bought the company to keep it going. Yeah. And, you know, you and I did a little bit of a, of a dive into the Sonex line. And the Sonex B model aircraft, which is a two-seat, of course, this is a propeller-driven aircraft. You know, you can build one for about $38,000, and that's pretty good. Now, we're not sure about the engine that we'd have to throw in that bad boy. Not a jet engine for that kind of price. No. <laughs> No, <laughs> but that's a moving, it's a moving airplane and, you know, it, it flies faster than 150 miles an hour. It lands at around 40. Wow. Yeah. That's not bad for a kit built. Yeah. You know, that's a good range. Yeah. Very much so. Hey, Cirrus, which we know always puts out new models. They have announced the new 2022 G6 and it has a, a lot of interesting updates, including everything from, well, speaking of speed, speed to uh, some more creature comforts. Not a kit-built model. No. (laughs) The Cirrus G6 SR, which is about $840,000. But yeah, that is interesting, Ian. And you and I were looking at some of the safety features, including that Spectra wingtip lighting option you know the, and so the lights come on within 300 feet of the surface and then above 300 feet you pointed this out to me it turns into a wigwag functionality for for increased visibility i think that's pretty neat and you know there's a, other creature comforts that we hear about on occasion in different usb outlets and technology but as you mentioned more drag reduction leading edge wing and tail panels that are now more streamlined and wheel pant tolerances that have been tightened yeah cirrus i think if you look at some of what they do you know I, if you're flying a 40 year old 172 and you look at an announcement like this you think like why what's the point i'm not going to buy a new airplane for you know, USB and, and some new wingtip lights, but Cirrus has really nailed it on the yearly update sort of cycle, update cycle. And they have people clamoring for these things every year. Another thing I think that's going to be a really big hit with owners is they've got the remote unlock and keyless entry, including for the baggage door. And I will tell you, to me, this is like, why would you, you know, what's the point, right? First of all, if you've ever fiddled with a baggage door key, you know how annoying it can be. But also, I flew a, a helicopter a couple of years ago that had this, and they said it was hugely popular with the owners, this keyless entry. And I just, I don't know, there's something about being able to walk from your luxury car to your airplane and have that seamless experience that people, I guess, really love. Well, it is more car-like, and that's the whole thing about a Cirrus is that you get in it mm-hmm. and you feel like you belong. We're, we are now used to that type of accommodations in an aircraft, the leather seats, you know, that side stick, which is awesome. 
But many, many of the advances that that we take for granted now, don't forget, Cirrus was like the, one of the first, if not the first company, with a digital panel back in 2000 with that, you know, SR20. Mm-hmm. And you can get air conditioning in a Cirrus, so that even makes it even more car-like, you know. And that's important if you're learning how to fly. be tough to make a case for this being a learning-to-fly airplane, but if you are flying in the southeast or in Texas or in California or elsewhere, Air conditioning is a big deal, and that makes a huge difference. It is. I don't think we've talked much about the speed yet. They are claiming, with some of those refinements, nine knots. We'll see. I don't know. And maybe lower fuel burns. Speed is, I think, important for Sears owners maybe, but not as important as you might expect because there are actually faster options out there. I think the whole package is really what's most important. But obviously, no one's going to say no to a couple extra knots, right? 183 knots max cruise speed is what what we're looking at. Yep. 17,500 feet maximum operating altitude, climb rate of about 1,300 feet a minute. And you're looking at taking off over a 50-foot obstacle at about 1,868 feet. Yeah, that's good. 1,000 feet normal, normally uh, without the 50-foot. Yeah, the other thing that I just want to really quickly touch on before we move on is is this mobile app that they have, the Cirrus IQ. Where, oh, right. Good point. Good point. Yeah, you can have real-time parameters of the airplane. And this, to me, is totally the future of aircraft ownership and, and of, of maintenance management where you're getting... I mean, right now, I think it's fairly basic parameters, including like fuel and maybe temps, a few things like that. But... In the future, to be able to monitor this stuff in real time, download it to the technician or to a third-party service maybe that can analyze the data and give you real-time information back to say, hey, it looks like you're whatever, you know, you need to, you're in the wrong position for proper leaning or whatever the case may be. It looks like, hey, when you land, check out this number five cylinder because we see a little fluctuation that's kind of weird on it whatever that is, right? That to me is totally the future. And so I, I think this is, it's a really interesting development that they're going to continue to kind of build on. Maintenance reminders, warranty info, and, and automatic logging of trips and, and other achievements. I agree with you, Ian. I've uh, welcomed myself to the digital world already when I'm uh, doing my flights. and That's how I log my stuff. I think you're right. Pilots are really embracing this. And there is a safety benefit to knowing exactly what is going on, downloading that data and taking a look at it. Yeah. Okay, hey, we want to finish off on the EPA and leaded fuels. So we have talked uh, for the past, I don't know, a couple of months now, I guess, about unleaded fuels and, and the switch to unleaded fuel. And in terms of that, I mean, we've mentioned GAMI and the PAFI process and lots of other things. But some a piece of news that just came out a couple of days ago is that the EPA will investigate whether leaded fuel from piston engine aircraft endangers human health and welfare. They call it an endangerment finding. So that release just came out, and it'll happen over the next, I think, what, kind of year, year and a half. You know, we've started reporting on this a while back, Ian. Don't forget, AOPA has been involved with the alternative fuel process for over a decade. Mm -hmm. But you're right. The EPA Administrator Michael uh, Regan said that protecting children's health and reducing their lead exposure is uh, at the core of the EPA agenda. And we've heard a lot about this recently from some airports in California, which are, in fact, two of them are, in fact, making Avgas go away, as we know it. Yeah. But, you know, AOPA has begun coalescing aviation stakeholders to assure a safe transition to unleaded gas. And we're, we're already um, involved, like we said, and been involved for a long time with, you know, aircraft manufacturers, aviation associations, type clubs, and fuel refiners. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point is a, is a safe transition. I mean, this announcement will not mean that uh, 100 Lila is going to go away overnight. It's just one step kind of in that process. And AOPA has been and remains committed to an unleaded future. I think most pilots are in agreement that it's going to be that way and it has to be that way. And so the the issue really being we just want it to happen at the right time when there's a fuel available, one fuel that can uh, substitute for the entire fleet. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to remind listeners, we touched on this at the uh, during the last episode of Hangar Talk, our end of the year episode. But we have a website that's got a lot of the most recent update information on Avgas on it. Go to aopa.org slash 100UL and you'll learn a whole lot more. And just a reminder that if you want to take action and be advised of all the latest advances with Avgas and the replacement for it, you can sign up for a newsletter on that page too. Yeah, please do that. So go to, uh, yeah, go to that uh, api.org slash 100 UL. That will be where you can learn a whole lot more. Yeah, so definitely do that. And David, talking about the future spaceflight, commercial spaceflight, Jared Isaacman, this guy's amazing. He's done a whole lot more rather than just, other than just, I should say, going into space, but you know, that's pretty darn cool. Everybody with me today, Jared Isaacman. So Jared, you have a fascinating aviation background, but as kind of a fellow space nut and a kid who was inspired by the the, the Apollo program, I want to jump right to your recent uh, space flight, where you were the commander and benefactor on Inspiration for the SpaceX flight in September that went higher than any crewed flight had gone in some 20 years. And in the process of that flight, you raised 240 million dollars for St. Jude's Children's Research Center. I was down in Florida last year when the first SpaceX flight with Americans went into space, and it was fascinating to see that thing go. So I got to know, what was it like being in the Dragon capsule when that Falcon 9 was lit? Tell us about it. It was really an incredible experience. So, you know, when you first get strapped into Dragon, they build in quite a bit of margin in the schedule for just things that can break that you need to fix. So you actually are strapped in, you know, over really two hours before liftoff. And if everything goes smooth, as it did for us, you're really sitting there and it doesn't look like time is moving at all. (laughs) And then when you get within 45 minutes of liftoff, that's when you arm the launch escape system and you start the propellant load. So a little different, like when the space shuttle was uh, fully fueled before the astronauts would ever get on board, Dragon, you're you're strapped in as the locks and the RP-1 is is flowing into the first and second stage. So you can feel Dragon and Falcon coming alive, the grumbling and the valves opening and the vibrations. And then it slows down again. And then the last couple minutes before liftoff, that that clock is just spinning. And the next thing you know, you're on your way uphill and, you know, 10 minutes later, you're you're in orbit yeah. uh, and it all happens very, very quickly. Wow. What are the G loads like on the takeoff, liftoff? Not bad at all. I mean, when you're coming off the pad, you know, you're just better than, you know, one to one thrust to weight. So as, as you can tell, when you see a rocket lift off, usually it, it doesn't move a whole lot at first. And then you start to see it really gradual and build up speed. So. You know, uh, if you're not looking at the uh, the instruments, you, you really hardly know you're coming off the ground, but it only takes a, a matter of seconds before you start accelerating rather quickly. 
your peak G loading on the way uphill is about 4.8 Gs. And that's towards the end of the second stage when you're, you're really obtaining orbital velocity. It's mostly less than that, you know, mostly really less than three on the way uphill until towards the end. Yeah. And then weightlessness, uh, tell what was that like? Yeah, it's very different. You know, we got a lot of a lot of pilots, I guess, uh, you know, kind of tuning in for this. And um, it's like explaining to somebody what pulling G's is like. And, you know, they'll say, well, I've driven race cars or I've been to amusement park rides. And you're like, it's not the same. <laughs> well, that's what uh, that's what being in microgravity is like. There is absolutely nothing that can prepare you for how that feels because it's physiological as well. There's fluid shifts to your brain. You, you do feel differently and it takes some time to almost acclimatize to it uh, for, you know, can take like a couple days actually, but you can be very happy and productive through it, but um, it, is a, it is a different sensation. Yeah, I read where Moonrise, the first Moonrise you saw was kind of an aha moment for you. Uh, that was probably hard to prepare for too. It was, that was probably, in terms of the surprises, you know, a lot of astronauts refer to the uh, the overview effect and seeing the Earth as a, you know, fragile place with a thin atmosphere and a world without borders and without violence. And but, you know, I, I felt like I knew all those things without having to go to space. Like and um, so when I saw the world from that vantage point, of course, it's super impressive and it radiates energy. But, you know, it wasn't until I saw that moonrise just based on the altitude, we were able to see, you know, the entirety of of the Earth's sphere with the moon coming around it in space in all four corners. Mm. And I just wasn't expecting that at the moment. And it just, it, it was more of an, made me want to look more outward to all that we don't know and all that we have yet to explore and, and, and learn about our universe and just the feeling that we need to get at it because we, we haven't made a whole lot of progress over the last 60 years. Yeah, that's, that, that is true. So Dragon was designed to be autonomous, yet you all trained for like almost a year to actually operate the thing and that sort of thing. As a pilot, did, did you ever get the desire to just click that autopilot off and uh, drive that thing around a little bit? We trained for six months and um, you get certainly a lot of cracks at manual operations in the simulator. I right. mean, it's, it's right. just like any other aviation training that we all go through. You know, the, the simulator is always the, the Apollo 13 scenario where, you know, the wing is barely attached. And everything's going wrong. And it's a great opportunity to, to prove that, um, you know, to apply really all the knowledge that you've accumulated in training. But once you get into the real thing, most of the time, the autopilots work right. We, we had some alerts and some alarms and different issues that, you know, are, you, you should expect. It never is perfect. And uh, we were flying at a much higher altitude with greater radiation exposure. So, so we had some radiation-induced events on some of the systems. But, like, this is why you have triple redundancy. And and in the end, there was very few manual, you know, inputs that had to be done at all. But but in the unlikely event something really did go wrong, you you do have the manual means to to come home and target a place to re-enter the atmosphere. And um and, and fortunately everything was very nominal for us. Yeah. Well that's good news. Still must have been tempting. <laughs> I if uh, if I could do it all over again, I think there there are some things I would have uh, done differently just to <laughs> just to say I did. So Yeah. So, uh, so you're up there about three days in orbit. Tell me about the re-entry and the splashdown and how that go. Yeah, re-entry is definitely a much, you would think, or at least I would have thought, that like the highest blood pressure moment would be on liftoff and the uphill. Because I think just visually, whenever we think about rockets going wrong, it's usually right off the pad. Sure. And, uh, sure. and actually, that was an area where we were all smiling and very, very charged up and focused on our job. Because there's actually quite a few outs. 
you know, unlike the shuttle program, we have a launch escape system. If, if Dragon or, or if I don't like something that's going on or, or even mission control, we can separate Dragon from the Falcon very quickly. It's very safe. There's actually a number of things that can go wrong uphill that you can fix. But once you're committed downhill, you have very little control because it's all in the thermal protection system, the heat shield, if you will. Like you're putting so much energy in that vehicle to go 17,500 miles an hour, and then you have to take it all out. And most of that happens as you impact the atmosphere. And it gets very hot. I mean, well over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And if anything happens, and you'd have no idea, like if you just took a small micrometeorite or orbital debris and it takes a little chunk out of the heat shield in the right spot, it's a big problem. So I'd say like all of our, you know, blood pressure was a little higher. The G-forces are more, you know, they are higher and sustained longer. And your body is deconditioned. Even in three days of microgravity, you're, you're, you're not quite the same. So, but it's still exciting. It's exhilarating. And, and then when you splash down, it's like a little fender bender. It's not a, not a big deal. <laughs> so you've had several months now since the flight back in September to kind of reflect on what it is that you did there. Any thoughts or observations on, you know, the, the role of space exploration on, on the human society and, and that sort of thing? Well, I mean, we, we were always rather consistent from the beginning of Inspiration4 that, you know, our, our job was really just to get it right so that there'd be a lot more interesting missions to follow. And, you know, in that respect, I think we, I think we did it right. You know, it was, the right, it was the right crew that all had their own audience to, to reach out to and inspire. It was all done for the right reasons, not just about, you know, what's interesting in space, but what we can accomplish here on Earth. We raised a lot of money for a cause that's important for today that has nothing to do with space. I think that's important while space is expensive. And then we, we dedicated our time on orbit to, to research and science that, that hadn't really had a chance to be done before and under like different circumstances. Like our altitude allowed us to do radiation research that will inform future long duration space flights. So I think we checked a lot of good boxes that again should allow a lot more interesting missions to follow. And, and that's what we set out to accomplish. Okay, so let's, let's go back in time a ways to your aviation experience. Uh, how did you get into aviation? Well, I was always, uh, always loved aviation. I mean, since I was a kid, I, I built like my 386 computer to play Falcon 3.0, uh, you know, loved watching Top Gun, like I think all of us, yeah. and loved watching the movie Space Camp and the right stuff, and you, you know, you you dream about the idea that maybe someday you could go and, and journey among the stars. And, and I never felt that that was actually possible, which is why I kind of gravitated towards what was, which was, which was flying. And I started flying, I guess, uh, about 18 years ago, and I just really never, never stopped. And it was, you know, I think it's, it's challenging, it's therapeutic, it's just great in so many respects. Yeah. So what ratings do you hold at this point and certificates? ATP for single multi, CFI, double I, MEI type ratings in various corporate jets and, you know, uh, experimental uh, like ex-military type aircraft mm -hmm. and various formation acrobatic ratings. Right. Okay. So you founded uh, Shift for Payments at 16 and uh, still the CEO there now processing hundreds of billions of dollars of electronic transactions per year. And so was there any intersection there between, you know, as a, as, a, as a kid starting a company like that that's now got thousands of employees and your aviation experience? Did, did one help the other or one inspire the other? Yeah, for sure. I, I still remember really clearly why I wanted to start flying and taking lessons. And basically, it had only been like 
four years after I started the company and, you know, I'm, I'm probably like 20 years old and I'm waking up on my keyboard every morning. And I was like, I was actually burning myself out. And I was like, I, I need a hobby. I need something else in my life that's, that's interesting and stimulating. And that's why I kind of say flying is therapeutic. I used to, I mean, almost all my lessons early on were at night. I used to fly at night all the time because it was just an opportunity to clear your mind. There was no Wi-Fi in airplanes at that point. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then I used to fly everywhere for business reasons, anywhere I needed to go and just progress very quickly from single to multi to jets. And, um, and then, you know, eventually the hobby, you know, grew into some philanthropic work, was able to do some flights to raise money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, flew air shows with it, and that ultimately led to a whole new business. Nothing to do with my day job and payments, but, um, you know, in uh, defense adversary work, basically flying as the bad guy for the military. So, you know, aviation has been more than just like a hobby and passion. It's really been a big part of my life on a professional and personal side. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that for a couple minutes. Uh, in 2012, you co-founded Draken International. Uh, sometimes described as the, the world's largest private air force with some 151 uh, tactical fighters and that sort of thing where the company's providing, I guess, like aggressor sort of uh, services and, and a lot of other mission types of missions too uh, to militaries around the world. So how did that come about? Yeah, it was, uh, what a cool business. I mean, I think it's like, you know, there's, there's commercial space and then there's like commercial fighter jets. It's right. not that far <laughs> off. It's, it's very high on the cool factor. Yeah. Yeah, so we were flying air shows. We did this, we had this, you know, seven ship act at one point where we had five L-39s and two MiG-17s. We even had a T-33 we flew a bit. And um, I flew right wing on the team and it was one of the founders of the team. And, you know, our big year was 2011 when uh, the Defense Department, you know, we we're basically going through sequestration from a budget perspective right. and, and all the demo teams uh, couldn't fly. So we wound up flying every weekend for like nine months wow. and it was an amazing experience but it, you know there was um it was very high risk flying you know we were flying with like three feet of wing overlap 18 inches of vertical separation even though we we, we all did well it was very safe uh, you just felt like this isn't sustainable this is very high risk there's got to be a way to pivot this into something more commercial and then we started kind of traveling around the world and just buying entire fleets of fighter jets from countries, Poland, Czech Republic, you know, South Africa, Spain, New Zealand. And we assembled this, like one of the world's largest air forces, really solely for the, the purpose of training the U.S. military as like a, a sparring partner. And mm -hmm. um, what an adventure. Right. That's, it, it sure sounds like what a, what a fascinating collection of airplanes. You had access to fly some or all of them at some point in there. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I was I actually had been flying A4 Skyhawk since uh, 2008. So my familiarity with that platform is what actually led us to our first purchase, which was the New Zealand A4 Skyhawks. Mm -hmm. So like just as cool as what you saw in Top Gun, but they had an F-16 radar in it and they had some other advanced avionics. Very familiar, flew a lot of A4s and, and newer models that we went up buying later on, like the, the Super Fox, the N model. But yeah, I, I pretty much was rated and flew every every type of jet that we had at Draken, uh, with the exception of the, the Mirage F1, which uh, which really came on after I left uh, the organization. Right, yep. So what do you currently own in flying? So I fly uh, a MiG-29. I'm very lucky to operate that. It's a, it's, a, it's a beast. I mean, it's the highest performance airplane I've ever flown. Wow. Um, fly L-39s, Alpha Jets, the uh, business jets like CJ3 and, you know, other jets in the uh, Citation family and such. Yeah. A favorite? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'd still like the A4N Skyhawk was always my favorite. It, it, it had a, a motor that was 20% more than like the biggest A4 motor that was typically deployed. And uh, it was very light. So uh, a clean A4N with like half internal fuel had better than one to one thrust to weight ratio. So it was like, I mean, it was a hot rod. But I like flying the MiG-29 an awful lot. Too, so. Yeah. So you've set a, you, you alluded to this earlier, you've set a couple of speed records, including the one for charity at least. What was that about and how did that come about? Yeah, so it was uh, 2008 and 2009. I had a, a Citation Mustang. It's like one of the first VLJs. Mm-hmm. And just thought it'd be cool with, you know, new glass cockpits that were just fusing information together that, um, you know, what about like flying around the world where you actually you can't flight plan in a traditional sense. You know, you've got to just use all the onboard information available to do it and and try and set a speed record. Now, like this to me was just like super fascinating, challenging, interesting, you know, just something I I personally wanted to try and accomplish. But like other of these adventures I've been fortunate enough to go on, you want to make it about something, you know, bigger than yourself. So the idea is we could we could do this challenge and also raise money for uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So did that in 2008. We came up short. We would have beaten it, but we got um, we got held up in a in a couple countries just due to regulatory issues. And then in uh, the next year we did it again with the CJ2, which was also in the same weight category. So it had some advantages because you get a little bit more range and speed. But uh, we beat the record by 24 hours. Wow! It was, and we bypassed all the countries we had issues with in the prior <laughs> year. So I saw a lot of cool parts of the world for about five minutes, yep. and um, and raised a bunch of uh, bunch of money for Make a Wish along the way. So yeah. that was cool. Yeah. Well, clearly aviation has been a, an important part of your life and made a big impact on your life. Uh, what would you say to somebody you run into, maybe? Uh, a kid somewhere who's contemplating learning to fly, maybe an aviation career, what would you say? I think it's fantastic. Whether or not you, you choose to make a career in it, I just think that you get an awful lot about aviation. I mean, it there's good structure and, and discipline and just a thought process on, on how you go through things. I mean, you know, I, I try and teach around here my, my, my day job how checklist discipline mm-hmm leads to good outcomes and failing to adhere to like a procedural driven philosophy is how you have mistakes. So like there's a lot that you can just learn that aviation teaches us that you can apply to other aspects of your life. It opens up opportunities and, you know, other, you know, new and like exciting regimes, like, you know, whether it's commercial space flight or supporting the commercial space industry or like aerospace medicine. I mean, you know, satellites, cyber, you know, avionics, there's just a lot of good, you know, things that can can develop from it. So aside from just being like able to fly like the birds, if you will, and like, you know, leave the the, the, the world we're normally bound to, like there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting elements to it over and above that that I think are great for for young people to get exposed to. And who knows what kind of an influence it can have on their life going forward. Right. So what's next for you? You've, you've been further from the surface of the earth than anybody had been for, for quite a number of years. And uh, so done a lot of interesting stuff. Where do you go from here? I think I'm really fortunate. I'm, I'm connected to three organizations that I, that I love very much. So my day job in Shift 4 that I've been doing for 22 years, um, I've been able to take an awful lot away from my exposure to an amazing company like SpaceX and bring it here and, and help us do things differently, more innovation. So I think future is really, uh, really bright with my day job. I'm still very connected to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. 
So just ran in their uh, half marathon this past weekend. Hmm. You know, I'm married to that organization uh, for the rest of my life. Like that mission is never is never over until no child dies in the dawn of life. So we'll continue to raise awareness and funds for them. And and I'm fortunate to be very close to, to SpaceX in a number of respects. And they are I mean, they are changing they are changing the world and, and making science fiction more reality by the day. So um, I intend to stay close with all three organizations. Mm -hmm. Is that suggest there's another space flight in your future? Well, we'll have to see. <laughs> All right. Jared, thanks so much for taking time uh, to, to share your story with us. Fascinating and uh, good luck on your next adventure. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, uh, thanks for the time today. It's great. Yeah. We were talking about this at home the other day, David, and and this idea of commercial space flight and paying to to go into space. And my my son said, "No way, never, wouldn't do it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Has no plans." And I think he's crazy. I would do this in a second. I would do it in a in a second too. In a New York minute, like they say. And you know, Ian, I'm going to bring something up that I've, I, I'm remiss to to not bring this up before. This was one of the stories you wanted to bring up as our top stories of 2021, and I talked I oh, talked yeah, you out right. of it. Commercial space flight. Yeah, but yeah. it's you know this is the future. And in this flight, as Jared said, you know they raised 200 million dollars for St. Jude's Hospital, which is neat. That's so cool. But the the innovation that he alluded to that is the future that brings a lot more people into aviation and aerospace stem learning and i think it's great for the younger generation no i disagree with your son i would go in a second <laughs> all right that's all the time we have for this week i'm ian twombly our editor is austin hansen and i'm david tilas don't forget you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcast all right we'll see you next time see you next time ian Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.